Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Joseph McBride. He published a book December 2021 titled Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy. And Mr. McBride has published many books, at least 20 here. But he's had a very productive year. He's putting out four books in a very short period of time. And other books that are coming out, one is titled Billy Wilder, Dancing on the Edge. Another is Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent Career. With it, It's an updated edition. And then I think in March, he's coming out with The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers. And we can go into some of his other books and titles, but I'd like to just go through his background. Joseph McBride is an American film historian, biographer, screenwriter, and professor in the School of Cinema at San Francisco State University. He has published 24 books since 1968 including acclaimed biographies of Frank Capra, John Ford, and Steven Spielberg. He previously published Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett in 2013. It was a book that was both epic and intimately personal, and it was the result of his 31-year investigation of the, of the Kennedy assassination up to that time. The book contained many fresh revelations from McBride's rare interviews with people in Dallas, archival discoveries, and what novelist Thomas Flanagan in the New York Review of Books called his wide knowledge of American social history, which also informs his new book, which we're going to talk about, Political Truth, with, which draws on and amplifies his prior research into the assassination. So, Joseph McBride, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Thank you very much, William. It's great to be on your show and talk about uh, this important subject. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your background or your other books, you have so many books. So I don't want to list all 24. Maybe you can just talk about your career. And you talked about, we talked about in the pre-show of your connection to John F. Kennedy. Maybe you can talk about where it started and progress yeah. up until today. My uh, career has been as a film historian and biographer and critic, uh, but my, I believe my Main interest has always been the Kennedy assassination since I was, uh, you know, since it happened, even before it happened, frankly. Um, I, I was a volunteer for President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, as a senator in 1960 in the Wisconsin primary campaign. And I met him a couple of times, had a chance to talk to him about profiles and courage. And uh, I, I also met him in, in 1962 when he was president. And uh, I was concerned when I met him uh, in intimate settings, very small. But one, one was a small setting. My mother, uh, Marion McBride, was a journalist, and uh, she was also involved in the Democratic Party in Wisconsin, and she became vice chairman the following year. She set up a, an event called Kids for Kennedy, two blocks from my house at the Wauwatosa City Hall, and uh, it was about 100 parents and children, and uh, I was 12. And Kennedy came in with, um, uh, I remember, two aides and a... Uh, uh, a reporter, and the reporter was probably Theodore White, who was writing the making of the president, uh, because Kennedy actually wasn't being covered that thoroughly by the, the Wisconsin papers. And then I met him um, 
four days later at, at the big campaign event <clears throat> that you can see in the in the classic documentary primary it was three thousand people in, in a big hall in downtown uh, the, the south side of milwaukee and i got to chat with him and uh, talk to him there you know you could just walk up and talk to to him at, at, at the small event we just stood around and chatted and uh uh, I was struck by his lack of security, and I, I, I felt that he was vulnerable, and I was concerned. And he had no uh, visible security. In in the big event in Milwaukee, um, you can see a policeman nearby, and that's about it. But he wasn't very close, and there were you know thousands of people shaking his hand. And um, so I was a student of the Lincoln assassination as a kid. Uh, I was eight, 1961 was the 100th anniversary of the Civil War outbreak and uh, <clears throat> so I, I the country was very talking about that a lot and I was reading a lot of books about that and um, I was aware of you know that he could be uh, a target and so I wrote a, a short story in October of 1961 for my freshman English class at Marquette University High School about his assassination I called it the plot against a country and it's a uh, you know juvenile work and, and kind of silly in some ways I stole the murder method from a Superman comic book, which is, tells you the level of uh, invention in it. But I was uh, focused on some some things like the autopsy and uh, uh, how, how his security was penetrated, et cetera. And, and, and it showed that I was really concerned about it. And so then when he was shot, um, I reacted quite instinctively. And I, I heard about it in the cafeteria line in high school, and I immediately ran out the door I think I was the only kid at the school who did that. I ran two blocks to a radio because I knew that when something terrible happens, you should get to a radio or a television as soon as possible before they start changing the story, which I learned that day because uh, I, I arrived at this uh, drugstore at, at 1240, 10 minutes after the assassination. And for 20 minutes, the network radio reports were saying that the shots came from the front. They said it was either the railroad bridge or the hill in front of him, which we now call the grassy knoll. And then at one o'clock, they started saying all the shots came from behind from a building called the Texas School Book Depository. It's the first time we heard that. And they didn't um, correct the uh, original report. They didn't say, well, we were wrong because of X, Y, and Z, or here's the information, here are the witnesses. You know, they just flatly uh, reversed the direction of the shots. And, and I think that triggered a, a red flag in my mind because I was already a journalist. I'd started publishing uh, articles for, for pay in 1960, and my parents worked for the Milwaukee newspapers, and so I was very into journalism and I, I, you know, my interest in journalism has always been very keen. I'm a media critic. And so that kind of alerted me to the role of the media in obfuscating the case. And uh, as the day went along, I went home and I was watching the news and I, I, I saw Oswald being dragged back and forth in the police station. And I saw him live when he said, I'm just a patsy at 7.55 p.m. And saw his midnight press conference and I believed him when he he said, I, I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. And uh, he, he asked for a lawyer. He didn't have a lawyer. And I was really, uh, by the end of the day, I wasn't believing the official story that was coming out that a lone nut with no apparent motive, or, or they, they were saying he was a communist uh, sympathizer um, and he'd been a defector in Russia. There was a suspicious amount of information coming out the first day, or we, we would now call it disinformation, a lot of it. Um, you know, the media were being flooded with uh, reports, but we didn't know that behind the scenes, uh, the authorities were a lot less certain of what happened. Um, 
Jagger Hoover the following morning uh, had a phone call with President Johnson and he said, uh, the evidence is not very, very strong. He said, at this point, there's not enough evidence to get a conviction. And if we had been told that on Friday or Saturday, we would have had a very different view of it. And I, for Into the Nightmare, I interviewed um, many people in Dallas, including District Attorney Henry Wade, who would have prosecuted the case. And he did prosecute the Jack Ruby case for killing Oswald. And uh, <clears throat> I also interviewed Jim Lavelle, who was the lead detective in the Tippett case. And they both indicated to me that Captain Will Fritz, who was the head of homicide for the Dallas Police Department, told them on Friday that we don't have uh, a, a case really for him killing Kennedy. Uh, so work up a case for him killing Officer Tippett. And it's peculiar uh, when you look at, I found an FBI document that most people have not ever heard about that said that Oswald was not even arraigned for killing Kennedy. He was only arraigned for the uh, shooting Tippett charge. He was charged with both murders, but when he was asked at the midnight press conference, uh, he said, I haven't been charged uh, with uh, shooting the president. He said, in fact, the first time I heard about it was when the reporters in the hall asked me the question. And the press seemed angry at him for, you know, they thought he was lying. And one reporter shouted out, you have been charged, you have been charged. And Lavelle told me he was telling the truth. That he hadn't been charged yet. He, he didn't. He hadn't been told that he had been charged with murdering the police, uh, policeman or the president. And um, I mean, he had the sense that uh, this, they were talking about this with him. They were, that we don't know because they didn't, they claimed they didn't record the interviews, but uh, um, the interrogation. But anyway, by the end of the day, I wasn't believing the official story. And uh, uh, and, you know, I, I call it a four-day docudrama in, into the nightmare. I have a chapter on the television coverage. Uh, you know, the first day is the shooting, a big uh, shock event, and then uh, trial on television, trial by television, and then killing him, lynching him in the police station. And then the fourth day is the uh, denouement, the wrapping it up with the grand funeral. Uh, and we were supposed to feel, uh, okay, that's over. Let's get back to business. Uh, Dan Rather, who's one of the leading cover-up artists in the case, um, actually said uh, in one of the uh, retrospective shows about the assassination that uh, the day he thought about was not one of those days, but the, the fifth day. He said, November 26th, the day America went back to work, is what he said. And he said, the country moved along as if, you know, the system worked and everything, people went back to normal. And I remember that day as a, a day of great desolation. I went back to high school and that's the day I saw the uh, Zapruder frames for the first time. I went downtown to get Life Magazine, which uh, arrived that Tuesday. And uh, it just seemed like the whole world had collapsed under me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did get influenced by the Warren report, like a lot of people, you know, most people majority of Americans didn't believe the lone gunman story at first, but they were persuaded by the Warren report. And, but, but then attitudes changed when critics started attacking the Warren report, and I was influenced by that and started rethinking the case, and I went back to my original skepticism. Right, and you include that in your book. You see the original researchers. So you got the Warren report, Mark Lane, and some of these really uh, you know, cure, very important people, Vincent Salandria, you mentioned. And I think there was a guy who just came out with a recent book. He's been researching the JFK case. I think it's Josiah Thompson, right? Six Days in Dallas. Didn't he just come out with a book uh, a year ago? I thought maybe. But 
done. But you're you're showing the media and how I mean media including books and research how the understanding of the assassination is unfolding to the public, right? Yeah, 1966 was a key year when a lot of books started coming out. Uh, Mark Lane was uh, the first person who wrote a serious piece which came out in December 64, a long essay, uh, about 10,000 words in the National Guardian, but that was a rather obscure little left-wing tabloid out of New York because he offered it to a lot of important magazines such as uh, The New Republic and The Nation and uh, The Progressive, and they all turned it down. And it was a lawyer's brief for Oswald. He was a lawyer, Mark Lane, and he was a former uh, uh, state assemblyman in New York. And so he took it upon himself to uh, uh, provide a defense for the, the murdered suspect who never had a lawyer. And then he was hired by uh, Marguerite Oswald to represent her son's interest. And he, he wrote a book, famous book called Rush to Judgment, came out in 1966. But that was the year that uh, several really key books came out. Edward J. Epstein did Inquest, which was an expose of the shoddy methods of the Warren Commission. And Josiah Thompson did Six Seconds in Dallas, which was kind of a micro study of the photographic evidence and other evidence. And uh, Sylvia Marr did uh, what I think is the best book on the Kennedy assassination still. It came out in 67. It was called Accessories After the Fact, which is a brilliant, complete uh, de demolition of the Warren report point by point. She's very logical and very precise. And, uh, what happened, the Warren uh, Commission published 26 volumes of supporting evidence, as we know, uh, although the evidence did not actually support the case. That's kind of ironic. It came out in November. The, the, the report came out in September, and then they put out their evidence, uh, which uh, actually raised a lot of questions, contradictions of, of the report. And so Mar and other uh, researchers started using their own evidence against the Warren Commission. And then people were doing independent research on the ground in, in Dallas. Uh, Lane was doing that. And, and Emil D'Antonio, an important documentary filmmaker, and Mark Lane made a film, Rush to Judgment, in 1967, interviewed a lot of the witnesses. and. Uh, Ken Jones Jr. was a hero of mine, a mentor of mine. He was a small-town newspaper man in, in Midlothian, Texas, had his own newspaper so he could publish whatever he wanted. And he was on the case. He said, I didn't realize it was a conspiracy until Sunday. He said, that's how naive I was when Oswald was killed. He, he, he started uh, questioning the case. But he was there, and he, he turned up a lot of important leads in the case. And uh, so I began paying attention to that, and uh, there was a... Even the mainstream media, which had been lying to us almost incessantly since the case uh, happened, uh, at first there were some contradictory reports for the first few weeks that the media hadn't got the, the story totally figured out, and even the FBI and the Warren Commission hadn't uh, totally settled on the final version. But then they uh, locked it in stone, and it's been maintained ever since. But in, in 66, the, the dissident, Writers caused the mainstream media to pay attention. Life magazine did an important uh, piece questioning some of the assumptions. I think that that had a big influence on me as a 19-year-old kid, and I started re-examining the case. I was kind of studying it as a kind of avocation for a long time. And, and in the 70s, when the revelations about Watergate and um, uh, CIA plots against foreign leaders came out, uh, it became obvious that there are conspiracies that happened in public life and in the United States. And, um, you know, it, it, a lot of people resist that idea. I mean, some people who believe in the official story of 
if you say to them, well, you believe in a conspiracy, right? And they say, no, I don't believe in a conspiracy. And I say, oh, really? Uh, 19 Arabs armed with box cutters brought down the uh, air defense system in the United States. Oh, oh, well, okay. They don't think that's a conspiracy because the conspiracy, the word conspiracy theorists, the words are very malleable. And people use them as a pejorative for just about anything they don't like. But by definition, it's it's something the government doesn't uh, put out as an official story. But anyway, uh, I began reconsidering it, and I, I started taking it very seriously. And the House Select Committee started investigating it, and I was paying attention to all that. And I bought the volumes. I didn't start my serious research, uh, you know, hardcore research until 1982, when I, I first went to Texas in '83, and I was going to the National Archives. And ever since then, I've been researching it uh, every day, you know, reading all and reading the documents and doing my own uh, interviews. And so this book kind of has different than other maybe Kennedy books because you focus in on how the media has shaped the narrative of the assassination really from the beginning. Bigger books, uh, uh, New York Times, for example, some of these editors and how it, it's been you know, contr controlled, puppeteered maybe. Uh, can you kind of talk about from the beginnings of, of how the perception that the media was in on on the kind of uh, Oswald as the only lone assassin myth. Yeah, um, you know, when we were back in the day there, we tended to trust the government and, and the media to some extent. Uh, people, you know, it's hard to remember the days when we believed what the government told us. And part of my uh, theory in, in this book is that the distrust of the media and the government is most people think it began with the Vietnam War when Johnson was lying to us about the Vietnam War. Uh, but it really began with the Kennedy assassination, which preceded that and helped cause the Vietnam War expansion. And that's led to this split we have in our country now where half the people seem to believe one thing and half believe another. And that's a, it's a real serious problem. Skepticism is a good thing, but you know, a, a level of skepticism where people don't uh, agree on what the truth is, is, is uh, risky for, for a country. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, famous politician, said uh, uh, everybody's entitled to his own opinion, but uh, not, uh, everybody's not entitled to his own facts. That's an important thought, because how do you decide what facts are? Well, historians are supposed to be, you know, determine facts, but the first rough draft of history is what Philip Graham, the Washington Post publisher, called journalism. And uh, that's a kind of a, a, a heroic uh, way of putting it, that they're out there trying to find out what really happened. But in fact, um, <clears throat> the media relied too heavily on official sources, and they always have. And back then, the media were in pretty much in bed with the government, even more than today. Uh, they still are to, to a large extent. But uh, when, when a, a number of important journalists, such as Helen Thomas, who was a great journalist for the UPI, and uh, Others uh, uh, said, um, uh, well, Bill Moyers, who was heavily involved in the Kennedy uh, cover-up, even admitted that we were uh, in bed with uh, the government back then, the journalists and government were, it's like another branch of the government. That, right. You know, it's they, perceived as separate, like a fourth estate, right? But in reality, especially during the Kennedy and the post-Kennedy assassination, lockstep with that story. Yeah, and you talk about Mockingbird. You talk. Bernstein wrote a famous article about all the assets, right? Cord Meyer was the CIA asset yeah, to uh, manage them. 
Bernstein's article, which you can read online, I'd recommend it to the CIA and the media, which was published in Rolling Stone in 1977. It's a great article, long article. He said there were about 400 media people in America at the time who were working with the CIA or for the CIA, either you know, full-time CIA people or, or people who were on the payroll who were then masquerading as journalists or people who were part-time, you know, helping the CIA, planning stories or giving tips. And he mentioned uh, three major media outlets, CBS, The New York Times, and Time Life were the biggest culprits in his view that they were deeply embedded with uh, uh, the government and, and the printed stories, you know, that the CIA especially was planning. And he kind of danced around his own former paper, The Washington Post, which is, has been kind of a CIA front from the beginning. You mentioned Operation Mockingbird. That was formed by um, uh, Wisner at the, uh, at the CIA, along with uh, Philip Graham of The Washington Post. They were the people who started uh, Mockingbird, which is a penetration of the, of the media by the CIA. And today, it's uh, Jeff Bezos is openly in business with the CIA, the guy who owns The Washington Post. Uh, and so it's it's not a secret they're not even covert anymore but they've uh you know when when 9 11 happened uh, i'm sorry when january 6 happened for example the washington post started running strange articles trying to deny that it was a coup attempt and i go through a lot of that because i, I connect the dots between kennedy assassination all the way to january 6 that we had a coup in America in 1963 that a lot of people won't admit was a coup because it's, it's kind of unthinkable that as Sinclair Lewis wrote a novel in 1935 called It Can't Happen Here, that's the attitude a lot of people have that it happens in other countries all the time, and it happened here, and uh, it almost happened in 2021-2022 uh, with Trump trying to overthrow uh, the, the election of Biden, and it could happen again in 2024 if we're not careful. So uh, the media have been doing the business of the government from the beginning, but we didn't quite know all that. But the, the honest journalists will admit that in retrospect, but they don't. You sorry to interrupt, but you you mentioned Jefferson Morley, who I've talked about his book about JFK, mm -hmm. and you mentioned him. He's been on my show three times, so it was interesting to kind of see him from the inside and talking about things like talking to the you know the bar is how he's talking to Joe and Edie's and stuff like that. So yeah, I found he's that a former Washington Post reporter who's mm -hmm. on freelance and he's writing about the CIA and the assassination. He kind of straddles the fence to some extent about he's a little cagey about what he really believes happened. You know, uh, I, 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 I'll mention another person who's a Washington journalist, Jim Hogan, who's a good journalist. He wrote the book Secret Agenda, which is a terrific book on Watergate, which approaches Watergate from a whole different perspective. Watergate is another story that's been uh, lied about and covered up. And Jim Hogan, I knew back in Madison, Wisconsin, when we were both working on rival newspapers. And so uh, I, I, I did some research on George H.W. Bush in 1988. I was the one who uncovered his early CIA connections before he became the director of the CIA, which he, he denies that he was connected, but I proved that he was. And he also had some connections with Kennedy assassination, which I, I have 35 pages in, in Into the Nightmare about that. He was in Dallas uh, the day of the assassination, as were Nixon and Johnson and Kennedy. Four presidents were there. And uh, Incredible. Incredible. I, I did a lot of research on Bush, and I found out all kinds of things that, you know, it's hard to prove, uh, you know, get the total evidence on a lot of the things that the Bush family has done. But I, I uncovered a lot of it, and I, I printed what I could for the nation. They wouldn't run the third story I wrote, which was about a, 
uh, a Republican Party operative, a young guy in Houston. Bush called the FBI shortly after the assassination and said this guy had been threatening to kill Kennedy when he came to Texas. And the first thing you wonder is why did, if that's true, why didn't he call the Secret Service or the FBI before the assassination? And the FBI, the Secret FBI went to the guy's house and they claimed that he was with his mother in Houston. But they did an eight-month investigation of him and his far-right associates in Dallas and Houston. And when Bush became vice president, this uh, the documents were removed from the National Archives, and I managed to get some of them. And that story hasn't been told, right? But I, I had all the documents, and I wrote it up for the, the nation. They wouldn't print it. But Hogan, I called in 88 when I was in Washington, and I asked, asked him for an interview, and he kind of balked at talking to me in person. But he said, you know, it's career suicide to write about the Kennedy assassination. He said, I'd love to do it, but said, I, I just can't do it because it's too uh, too risky. You know, people wouldn't publish your work, et cetera. And that's, that's the problem with a lot of journalists. I think a lot of them know better. Penn Jones used to say, I can't believe that so many smart men are so stupid. You know, great comment. But I think a lot of them actually know better. You know, if, if Dan Rather even has admitted in some unguarded moments that he has a lot of serious doubts about the official story. But he doesn't share them much on television, although I found CBS uh, keeps doing specials about the assassination, lying about it. But I found one in which um, Rather and Cronkite were talking and Rather was admitting a number of serious doubts about the official story, which were you know, remarkable, but it kind of people kind of glossed over it. But um, a lot of them, if, if you had a few drinks with them or whatever, they would admit, well, you know, I don't believe that story, but I can't tell the truth. I mean, I'll give you an example. A political truth, I've been working on this book. I mean, I've been researching the media from the beginning. And, and when I started Into the Nightmare, you know, this research sort of spills over into political truth because I was reading the same documents and books. And um, I, uh, I thought for Into the Nightmare, I thought of writing a long chapter on the media, but I, I, I kept thinking it's too big a subject for one chapter. So I wrote a chapter on the four-day docudrama of that weekend, which I thought was a good uh, look at it, because I think it was actually damaging to our country. Most people think it was a triumph of journalism. Uh, and, and journalists like David Brinkley said, uh, we did our job because we comforted the country and reassured them that nothing, he said there was no crisis. It wasn't a tragedy. I mean, amazing comments. But yeah, incredible. It was a huge crisis and it was a terrible tragedy. But they thought they had done their job in tranquilizing the country. And, um, you know, instead of people going out on the streets like they do in some countries when there's a, a coup, people sat around the TV sets. Uh, more people were watching TV on November 25th than ever before. 93% of all the sets were being used and people sat inside their houses, atomized the public, tranquilized people emotionally. And um, uh, so then I began thinking, well, it really should be a whole book. And, I, and so I wrote, a, I started doing an outline of political truth, the book that became political truth. And I offered it to, uh, an editor I, I, I knew at Simon & Schuster, which has published a couple of my books. And he said, I, I believe there is a conspiracy, but we can't publish a book like that attacking the media because we need the New York Times to review our books. Right. And if we attack them, they won't review our books. I mean, that that's, shows you very dramatically exactly what's at stake, that if you are a dissident on that subject, you pretty, pretty quickly lose your job as a reporter. I mean, Helen Thomas, for example, 
started asking tough questions of George W. Bush about the Iraq war. And what they did was she was in the front row in the White House briefing room and they started moving her back. And then he wouldn't call on her anymore. And then she lost her position with the UPI because if you lose access, you lose your job. And she wound up working for a little suburban throwaway paper in Washington. And she was a great journalist. My mother worked with her in Washington. They were uh, colleagues there. And uh, uh, she, she had a decades long career, right? Like she was yeah, around for a long time. Then. My mother was a great journalist and Helen Thomas was too. But, you know, they froze her out. And that's what happens. Access is the name of the game. And but the, the, the downside of access is you have to print the stories they tell you. I mean, I'll mention somebody who seems like a CIA uh, advocate on television. David Ignatius is on CNN all the time. Or, I'm sorry, he's on MSNBC. He's on Morning Joe. He's an interesting uh, fellow. He's on the Washington Post. And he always talks very knowledgeably about what the CIA is thinking about subjects. And if you want to know what the CIA is thinking, tune in David Ignatius because he's like a, a mouthpiece for them which is of some interest. You have to discount it to some extent, but uh, he's, he doesn't make any bones about it. He doesn't say I'm working for them, but he might as well be. And that's that's how you get ahead in American journalism. And Malcolm X, I start the book with a quote from him, uh, which is very eloquent. I just want to... Uh, Do you want to read it? Yeah, I'd like to read that because I, you know, I love Malcolm X and I was extremely uh, distraught when he was killed too. I remember that as uh, uh, another uh, terrible moment for me. And, and the people in our country. And you include that in the book. You include so many other things other than the Kennedy administration uh, assassination that were manipulated by the media. Malcolm X is one, but so much during the 60s was yeah. like they, you didn't have the background story. You had some kind of cover media yeah, well, cover story. Most of the big events, I'll, I'll go into this in a second after I read this, but most of the big events that have happened since 1960, the, the official stories don't hold up at all. They're kind of ludicrous. But what Malcolm X said in 1964, he said, the press is so powerful in its image-making role, it can make the criminal look like he's the victim and make the victim look like he's the criminal. This is the press, an irresponsible press. If you aren't careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. Those are, those are the stakes. It and applies to today, for sure. It's so true right. today. You look at, yeah. wow, you know. I mean, he was talking truth, and, and I was impressed by that, but a lot of people thought he was some kind of dangerous uh, radical, but uh, he's, he's a very uh, deep thinker. Um, but um, That's what made him dangerous, actually. Is that yeah, that's, that's why he was killed. And even today, you know, um, his, his murder, the facts dribble out gradually. There's some books that deal with parts of it, but uh, uh, one of the alleged assassins recently was exonerated after all these years. Uh, and another one uh, who, who was dead was exonerated, but the New York Times reported that, but they didn't report that the uh, New York Police Department and the FBI were heavily involved in his killing too. And it's kind of the, 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 there are lines you can't cross, like 9-11 is one of the red lines you know, in, in American journalism and the Kennedy assassination is another. But my argument, my, this political truth is, is kind of my history of the United States since 1960 in a sense, because I think we've been living in a complete uh, world of lies since then. And certainly our country, you know, was formed with a lot of big lies from way back about genocide and slavery. And, you know, we're still fighting over those issues. But, um, you know, whether slavery should be taught in schools is, has become a big issue, uh, again, which is, uh, you know, shows you how dangerous true history is. But 
you think of all the big events that have happened since 1960 in America, the Kennedy assassination, the assassinations of uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, uh, Vietnam War, Tonkin, Iran, uh, the um, uh, Iran Contra, uh, some of the uh, CIA's activities, uh, you know, assassinating people. And uh, then you move into um, later the, the Gulf War, the Iraq War, the war in Afghanistan, 9-11. The official stories, if you examine those, are pretty ludicrous. Uh, they just don't hold up. I mean, you know, uh, and, and you can tear those apart. They're almost laughable uh, that people uh, have to accept them in the media. But the, 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 people, the public is smarter than the media. Give, you know, that's one of the things that is somewhat hopeful. The average person out there is pretty skeptical of things, and some people don't want to think about it too much. I've had people say, "Gee, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't want to think about these things like you do because it would scare me." But if if you're willing to have an open mind, and actually, one thing that's very positive, a lot of people my age, I'm a baby boomer, and you know, I've had a lot of experience, and you probably have too, of trying to talk to your friends about. Things like the Kennedy assassination, and they, they don't want to hear about it. And they, they, they use buzzwords, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, I don't want to hear about it. It's a way of shutting down discussion, like don't talk about it. And then they make fun of you. And for a while that bothered me. And then I realized, you know, you just can't worry about this. Just tell the truth and don't talk to those people and don't bring it up. And but then, you know, if you don't bring it up, you it, it limits your discussion with certain but I've had I've had actually had both, Joseph. I've had talks with people who say I'm a conspiracy theorist. And then I've talked to wealthy sons where I was the guy trying to put it together for them. And sometimes they would nod on and sometimes they would say no. And when I walked away from that discussion, they knew exactly what happened. Yeah. They didn't know the fake story that was out there. They knew the players, the people, but they couldn't say anything. They were, they were part of a different like a breakaway political class that knew that it was alive, but they can they can't tell it either for different reasons because they would betray their parents' class and a lot of other things. Like they're part of you know the the right. I think the right you could say the right in general um, were the people who did in Kennedy and those some of those people and the sons of some of those people are still around. Well, and, so. and you know I, I, I criticize the liberals too and uh, left wingers like I F Stone and uh, other people. Uh, the nation, progressive, what, what passes for the left wing in our country were uh, equally culpable of not reporting the truth about the assassination. The nation has, uh, they ran a, a few articles over the years questioning the case early on, and then they ran two of my articles, but I think they ran them because they're, you know, criticizing Bush. But once I delved deeper into the assassination, Victor Navasky, the editor of the nation, very, you know, well-regarded uh, historian, said, don't, don't, write about the assassination, it's a quagmire. That's the word he used, and that word comes up. Uh, so the left is equally culpable, and liberals are, are afraid of their shadows uh, and right-wingers. But I, you, you talk about a generational thing, and, and I was going to say that people my age, are, a lot of them are kind of hopeless on that subject. But when I talk to students, since I teach at San Francisco State, I teach a course often called Film and Society, which is basically a history class taught through film, because the students are kept ignorant of a lot of history. They don't get the history in high school or, or even college. And um, so I, I, I use films that are about history. Some of them are good or some are not so good. And then like I show all the president's men, I point out that it's a fairy tale. It's not what really happened. I explain what really happened. They're very interested in this stuff. And I show uh, 
I show part of Oliver Stone's JFK. There's this remarkable segment of about 20 minutes where um, the Jim Garrison character analyzes the Zapruder film. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to have a, a film analysis in the middle of a big mainstream film for 20 minutes. And then he's giving his alternate, uh, he said, let's just speculate for a minute about what really happened. And he labels it speculation, but what he, he does then, Stone shows the alternate version of what happened, and it's it's quite accurate. I'd say there are a few things that I disagree with in the film. Uh, I think the Zapruder film has been altered, for example, and Stone's film takes it as as gospel as people used to. But um, there's frames missing. It look you can tell it's choppy. Yeah, it's, it's been, been edited. Seriously yeah. altered by the CIA the weekend of the assassination. And, I mean, some of it is very obvious, like, for example, um, uh, when the car turns onto Elm Street, there's a jump cut, and suddenly the car is in the middle of Elm Street. And Zapruder himself testified under oath to the Warren Commission that he filmed the turn onto Elm Street. So what happened there? You know, and there's, there's no explanation except that it was taken out. And they also removed uh, evidence of the car coming to uh, either a stop or a near stop. 57 witnesses uh, or more said the car stopped. I interviewed Senator Ralph Yarborough, who was in the car with Johnson, two cars behind it. He said the uh, Kennedy's car stopped and Secret Service men swarmed around it. You don't see that in the Zapruder film. You see one man, Clint Hill, jumping out and rushing to the car. But he said Secret Service men swarmed around the car and he said, I thought there was an explosion in the car and then the car took off. And uh, you don't see that in the film. And, and the, the, the headshot, is very dramatic whether his head goes violently backward but some witnesses said his head first went forward then it went backward he was shot in a crossfire his head was hit two or three times you don't see all that on the film and there are other things about the film that don't add up but the point i was going to make about um when i show the film in class oliver stone's jfk it gives an alternate view of the different events and how oswald was framed and then I show part of Rush to Judgment. I show the testimony of Crowley Clemens, who saw two men shooting Tippett. And I show um, S.M. Holland, who was a very honest man. He was a railroad man who was on the railroad bridge, had a great vantage point. He saw smoke coming from behind the fence on the grassy knoll. And he, he ran over there with some other guys. And they found a lot of footprints and cigarette butts, you know, where the smoke came from, where somebody was shooting. And, 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 and I show. Um, part of Wag the Dog, which has a fascinating sequence showing how uh, video footage can be altered in a studio to create an event that didn't happen. They create a, a, a kind of a war scene that never happened so they can use it as propaganda. And Barry Levinson, who directed Wag the Dog, said of, at the time, he said, if, if something bad happens, get to a TV. He said right away, because within two hours, they can alter the video and put fake videos on. Today, it would probably be uh, 30 minutes or 20 minutes, you know, but it's what I said about the radio. Run to a radio like I did, uh, you know, and, and you get to, uh, there's a kind of a myth in, in journalism that first accounts are fallacious and then later accounts are more believable. I think it's often, I mean, it is true that some first accounts are, are you know, confused or whatever, but a lot of them are, are very accurate before they start changing the story into something propagandistic and so um, I had that had that experience and then so I track in political truth the evolution of the cover story from November 22nd through the uh, first year until the uh, the Warren report and I also in parallel talk about what was really happening behind the scenes of people like Hoover 
Henry Wade expressing doubts about the official story and how Johnson was altering the course of the Vietnam War secretly two days after the assassination. And the public didn't know that. And I went into the newspapers at the time and they reported the false stories that the government was saying, oh, uh, Johnson is going to continue Kennedy's policy. And Kennedy had pulled out a thousand troops from Vietnam that fall. He had ordered a thousand withdrawn and, and they actually came out in December through inertia and then they were put back right away in January. But Johnson reversed his policy and and a lot has been written about that uh, with the National Security Action Memorandum saying we're going to expand the war into North Vietnam and we're going to win the war. And Kennedy was trying to wind it down. But you don't read that in, in the media today. You read the opposite. And that's one of the biggest lies we're fed. And Kennedy is villainized as the man who led us into Vietnam. And he did uh, kind of recklessly get involved in Vietnam, but he realized the war was unwinnable. And in 63, for months, he was working on ways to uh, pull back and, and begin a withdrawal. And Johnson was gung-ho and expanded the war and lied about it. And so I'm talking about what happened behind the scenes that we weren't told about. And then I go into the the dissident writers and how they uncovered uh, the actual facts of the case. But they, what you have to do is you have to publish in small journals. The internet has been a great boon, I'd say, to assassination researchers because a show like yours, William, you know, is great. We didn't have those back in 63 and people can get unfiltered, you know, hour and a half, two hours of uh, somebody uh, being interviewed on the subject and exchanging views. And and uh, the internet is, is vilified for a lot of reasons and some of them are valid, but I'll give you an example. Uh, Darnella Frazier, the young woman who, who uh, photographed the murder of George Floyd with her iPhone, uh, she she kept it steady for nine minutes, very admirably kept the camera steady, even though she was watching this terrible uh, murder where the policeman was kneeling on his neck. And what she what did she do with it? She didn't sell it to Time Life like Zapruder sold the Zapruder film. Uh, he sold it to them, and it didn't come out until... Uh, they put some frames, selected frames that were chosen to distort the meaning of what happened. They put some in Life magazine, and then a year later, they uh, they ran color versions instead of black and white. But the film itself wasn't shown to the public until 1975, uh, except at the Garrison trial in 1969. They showed it in the courtroom. But Darnella Frazier uploaded her video immediately onto Facebook Live. She didn't charge for it. She didn't want money for it. She just wanted the public to see it. And it had look at the effect that it had. It changed our country. It gigantic. Absolutely. And she Huge got a Pulitzer Prize citation, which I was really thrilled about. She, she's a citizen journalist. And I, I, I make the point that citizen journalists are the heroes of the case, along with the witnesses. You know, the, the, there are a lot of brave people like um, I dedicated Into the Nightmare to uh, Aquila Clemens and S.M. Holland and Marianne Mormon were among the brave witnesses who came forward and just told the truth. And there, there are quite a number of them who, you know, they, they didn't want died, to... died mysteriously, right? Well, some Wasn't of them... One, yeah, some the of them the policemen. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Clemens disappeared after being interviewed by Mark Lane and Emil D'Antonio for uh, Rush to Judgment in 66. She was never seen again. And she says in that interview, you can watch it on YouTube, that she was threatened by the Dallas police. A policeman came and showed a gun and said, you better not talk, you might get hurt. And uh, a, a lot of us have tried to find her. She she wouldn't be around now because she'd be about 110, I, 
I found. I think she may have moved to Philadelphia. That's as far as I could tell. But she, she, she couldn't be traced. And something, you know, we worry about her because she was openly talking about two gunmen. And D'Antonio said um, when when he and Mark Lane went to Dallas to film Rush to Judgment, uh, when they filmed in Dealey Plaza, it was all very relaxed. Nobody bothered them. But when they got to the scene of the Tippett killing and started interviewing witnesses, there was tremendous tension. He said all the tension was at the site of the Tippett killing. Mm -hmm. And the Tippett killing was ignored pretty much by the media and by um, the Warren Commission barely investigated it. It was very perfunctory. And uh, the Dallas police basically dropped the case after two days when Oswald was killed. They just said, oh, okay, Oswald. Just, it, was, it was crazy, cleaned up. It was done. He did it. Yeah. And yeah, it was, you know, you I mean, and you, you uh, interviewed people very close to that death, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, here's a, even if, let's say he's the honest cop, any cop who's killed, they want to investigate it and find out who did it, but they, they didn't want to know actually what happened. Part of it was Tippett was involved in some unsavory activities. He was carrying an extramarital affair. And Alan Dulles asked Chief Curry, was Tippett involved in narcotics? There was a rumor about that. And some people claimed he was friendly with Jack Ruby. But what I found out was that Tippett and William Mensel, who was the officer actually covering that area of Oak Cliff, Tippett was out of his district. Uh, they were both told to go into Oak Cliff shortly after the assassination, tracked down Lee Harvey Oswald, who was known to the Dallas police. And uh, it isn't clear if they were supposed to kill him or capture him. And I tend to think it was to kill him because I think the plan was aborted and then they were gonna try to kill him in the theater and that didn't work out. So they had to, they, you know, Dwight McDonald said Oswald miraculously survived for 48 hours in the custody of the police. And then they killed him in the police station, surrounded by 60 policemen and a lot of press people on live TV. But Tippett and Mensel, see, this is proof of conspiracy because the official story is the Dallas police didn't know who Oswald was until they arrested him at 152. And then they, he had two different uh, names uh, on identification. So they didn't uh, decide who he was until 210 when they got him downtown. But it, by 1245, Tippett was racing around Oak Cliff trying to find Oswald. And he stopped a, a car and then he ran into a uh, record store and he made a mysterious phone call and he was frantically looking for Oswald. And Mensel uh, went to, uh, I, I got this from Tippett's father. Nobody had interviewed Tippett's father, who was a very good source. He was an elderly man, but very sharp. He said that uh, soon after the, his son was killed, Mrs. Tippett, Marie Tippett, the widow, told him that an officer came to her and explained what happened. It, it was Mensel, although Mr. Tippett didn't remember the name, but I figured it out from the activities of Mensel. Uh, and he told uh, Mrs. Tippett that the two of us were looking for Oswald. I got into a, an auto accident. I didn't make it, and J.D. got there, and he got killed. And I believe J.D. Tippett ran into a police ambush, and that's that's a whole other story. But um, Mensel was involved in a, a, a traffic accident uh, about two blocks away, about two minutes uh, around the time Tippett was shot. And uh, he, uh, the official story is he was told to go to the scene of an accident and he cleared the accident in four minutes, which is impossible. You know, if you go to an accident, you, you, don't, you don't write it up in four minutes. I think he had the accident is my, my thought. And then he said he felt terrible that he, he didn't get there and J.D. got there and got killed. And uh, 
I think Tippett was lured into a trap. He may have been involved in, in various ways with the assassination, or it may have been just an attempt to lure all kinds of police cars into Oak Cliff and drain them from downtown where they should have been investigating the, the assassination. But also they, they, they swarmed around the theater, huge number of policemen to get Oswald, the scapegoat. And, um, uh, you know, that, that would be enough reason to get rid of a policeman, an expendable policeman. It's a terrible story. Right. I mean, but it's an important to the side story, right? Because they wanted to clean up all the loose ends, get make sure Oswald, they were trying to get rid of him. And that to me, when he was brought out and Ruby was there, it was almost like leading a guy down the, to the abattoir, you know, like they, they were leading him out like he was going to get killed, is my sense. Well, you can see uh, Captain Fritz, the head of homicide, walking carefully several steps ahead of him so he's not in the line of fire. And then Lavelle is handcuffed to him, and he does look shocked that Oswald was shot. But uh, a lot of researchers believe that a uh, corrupt cop helped uh, Ruby into the uh, underground parking garage, and he didn't come down the ramp as as, as they claim that he came through a, a doorway and various. You know, one thing one thing you do when you write a book, as I've done, on Tippett. You know, I tried to open up the Tippett case because you know it was kind of ignored for many years. Dale Myers did a book on Tippett, which I called the Warren Report of the Tippett case, which is just covering up everything. And he he mentions uh, things that don't match his official story that Oswald did it, but he puts them basically in in footnotes at the end and dismisses them. You know, uh, he doesn't really. Uh, examine them seriously and so that book is is the, the kind of the false version of what happened to Tippett. Gary Muir did a little uh, unpublished book on Tippett in 1971 but that's about all that was written on this guy and I wanted to open up that area of study because uh, David Bellin who is one of the uh, Warren Commission lawyers and strident defender of the Warren Report said the Tippett murder was the Rosetta Stone of the case and what he meant was uh, Tippett was shot by Oswald, and that proved that Oswald killed Kennedy. And that's really backward logic when you think about it. You know, it doesn't, if let's say that somebody shoots a policeman, doesn't prove that he killed the president. You know, but the logic is well, why would he kill this policeman unless he was fleeing from a terrible crime and didn't want to be arrested? And uh, it doesn't make sense, but the public bought that illogic. They thought, oh, yeah, he must have, why else would he kill the president, uh, the, the policeman? Some people even think Tippett, uh, the Tippett murder was not even connected with uh, Kennedy's death. That's another version. I, I don't think so. I think Tippett was involved. But um, there are many mysteries about the Tippett murder. It's like Rashomon. There are about 20 witnesses, and about 10 of them think that um, one or two people, uh, two people killed Tippett, uh, uh, you know, or, or somebody who didn't look like Oswald, like somebody who's short and stocky, bushy-haired guy. Uh, helped shoot him. And then about 10 people said that Oswald did it. But most of the people who said Oswald did it said said that later, you know, like they, they wouldn't identify him right away. The closest witness wouldn't identify him. So he wasn't taken to a police lineup. And the people who saw the lineup, it was really obvious who the suspect that they, they favored was because he was the only guy who was messed up and, and was sort of uh, beat up. up. Yeah. The other guys were wearing suits and stuff. And, you know, it's the, the those, those were... Uh, uh, phony uh, lineups. And then some people, uh, William Reynolds um, was a guy who was a used car salesman nearby. Um, he was, uh, he wouldn't identify Oswald as the shooter. 
uh, two months after this the shooting, somebody broke into his car lot and uh, shot him in the head, and he miraculously survived. And then he said, "Oh yeah, it was Oswald I saw running away." You know, he changed his story. And uh, you know, and then another one, Domingo Benavides, the closest uh, witness, wouldn't identify Oswald, but three years later he identified him to CBS for one of their phony programs. And uh, uh, well, I'm sorry, Warren Reynolds was the name of the other witness I, I mentioned. But you know, so there are all kinds of problems with the witnesses in the case. Another thing that there was a uh, researcher named Jerry Rose who had a, a theory that Jack Ruby sort of staged the Tippett killing because a lot of the witnesses were connected with Jack Ruby. And mm -hmm. I found that out to some extent when I interviewed people and then he identified other people. And it's, it's strange that about half of the witnesses were uh, acquainted with Jack Ruby. That is weird. Uh, Ruby may have been there. He may have been one of the shooters or he may have been supervising the scene. And then he, then he goes to Parkland Hospital and may have planted the bullet there. Um, so the, it took a long time to figure that case out. That's why I spent 30 years on that book. But right, and that title of the book, sorry to interrupt, is "Into the Nightmare: My Search for the Killers of John F President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett." That's yeah. that's the premise. yeah. And one thing I hope to do with that book and Political Truth as well is to open up subjects so other people will follow. That's what you want. You want to have happen in your historian. And so some people have gone into the Tippett murder further and they're, they're coming up with different suspects and different uh, theories. And I'm, I'm glad they're doing that. And it's very interesting. And political truth just came out, but um, it, it's, I'm, I'm really trying to raise uh, attention to the lies of the media and how, uh, what, a, what an outrage it is that we've been fed this propaganda by the Washington Post and the New York Times in particular. Those are the two outlets I studied the most, but I study many other uh, you know, magazines, newspapers, television stations, uh, documentaries. And even are, fictional, so-called fictional books, right? Don DeLillo? Yeah. I found that interesting. Don DeLillo's uh, Libra, which is a, a, an interesting book about Oswald, but it, it it's based on a kind of a, a, a ludicrous uh, theory uh, that he came up with. But it, it does have a kind of some insights into possibly what the mindset of Oswald might have been. But there's a book by John Armstrong that I, I really uh, admire called Harvey and Lee. And he spent a long time, 10 years of very intensive, expensive research. He's a well-off guy who just went all out with research. And there's a tremendous amount of paper trail on all of us. I found that when I did a book on Frank Capra that um, you can trace the records. One of the things that I found amazing about, for example, very early on, there were reports that Oswald was seen in two places at once, and people couldn't figure out how that happened. And Richard Popkin wrote a book in 1966 called The Two Oswalds. He was a philosophy professor, and he theorized that maybe there were two people impersonating. One was impersonating Oswald, and it was it was a setup, you know. And this happens in spycraft, actually, quite a lot, where people share an identity to confuse people or give plausible denial. Because they can say, well, this guy didn't do it because he was in a different city or whatever. But Armstrong, I was always agnostic about that. I was agnostic on a few things like the the, the alteration of the Zapruder film. I didn't totally believe that until Douglas Horn proved it in his um, books on the Assassination Records Review Board. He wrote five volumes, self-published, really excellent books. And uh, also the uh, autopsy was... Um, uh, altered Kennedy's body. David Lifton proved that to me in best evidence. And I came up with some further uh, evidence of that. 
I found a document that an FBI document from November 22nd in the evening, H. Belmont, who was heading the investigation for the FBI, said there's a bullet lodged behind President Kennedy's right ear and rear in the process of retreating it. And that, that alone destroys the Warren Report because there is no bullet lodged behind President Kennedy's ear in the Warren Report. And the autopsy doctors said they couldn't find a bullet. They, they were confused, you know, but um, Horn and Lifton proved there was a pre-autopsy autopsy where they altered the body and Horn actually found witnesses to that, that they, they created a huge wound. Everybody in Dallas, the doctors and nurses said the shootout, the blowout was to the back of Kennedy's head, a big wound the size of a grapefruit. And uh, the photographs of the autopsy and the Zapruder film show a huge wound, the top of his head and the right side, much bigger than the witnesses in Dallas said. And they also show an expanded wound in the throat where doctors in Dallas said very clearly that he was shot once in the throat. And an entrance wound is very small, but you know, exit wound is big, but they, they sliced up his throat at this autopsy to remove. Uh, and you can see in the Zubruder film, he's grabbing his neck before he was shot the headshot. Yeah. He was so. shot from the front, and they didn't want you to know that, so they claimed it right. came from behind and went out of the throat. And oh, right, right. That's how they account for this large rip in his throat. But um, they altered the wounds, and they took out bullets and fragments. It just, the whole thing, it was a massive conspiracy. I don't even think it's a conspiracy. There's so many moving parts and so many people were involved. They may not have had a choice. So it just was so many things over time, too, you know? Yeah, one and time, you know, people have certain buzzwords you read in the media, and I go into all this political truth. They, they use words to mock conspiracy theories. Like they say, oh, it's a vast, sinister conspiracy. They love those words because it sounds a bit silly. But the more I looked into the case, the more people I found had to have been involved in, in, in the killing. And it, it is it is hard to kill a leader of a country, especially in broad daylight like that. Um, once in a while, somebody can get close to a leader with a pistol and shoot him, but it's very hard to do it in a crossfire in a big public square like that. And then all the things that happened, for example, the autopsy was controlled by the military, which was controlled by the president, Johnson. And uh, uh, many things had to be controlled. And then the Warren Commission was appointed by Johnson. And, and, and you know, one just as one piece of propaganda, it's not actually called the Warren Commission. It's called the President's Commission on the assassination wow. of President Kennedy. And that, see, that's a convenient change because it's really Johnson's commission. It's very Johnson, convenient. And who does he put on there? Dulles and, and John J. McCloy. Like, these, these are yeah, Kennedy's no. enemies. These are the most biased people on earth. Yeah, and Jerry Ford, who was FBI informant, and uh, some people think he was being blackmailed by the FBI. And uh, uh, Johnson called the commission the K. Graham Commission. She was the publisher of the Washington Post. That shows you how heavily involved the media were. They were pushing Johnson to have a commission. He didn't want to have a commission. He wanted to have his buddies in Texas investigate the case, and he was persuaded by Joseph Alsop of the Post that that would be a disastrous idea because people would, would smell a rat if Texas investigated the case. So he said, let's get this group of uh, august uh, uh, right. citizens. And Dean Atchison and um, uh, William Bundy and uh, other people were involved in, in, in uh, uh, coming up with this idea for a commission. So the, the whole apparatus of the establishment got involved. And 
So I was kind of an agnostic on some of these issues until people proved to me that, uh, yes, the body was altered, the film was altered. So all these things happened that, you know, evidence was altered. You can't take any of the evidence at face value, which is good for a historian, uh, a good discipline for a historian, because you you can't just say, oh, yeah, you know, somebody said something, or you got you have to prove it, you have to get it witnesses you have to get documentation and if there's not support for something i i, I, I either leave it out or i call it speculation that's the but only the, way but it. the kennedy i mean i think your title of your book is apt because the kennedy the battle for the truth of kennedy was fought in the in a medium of media right so all these people are saying yes no yes no even though the warren report of the president's commission as you say it was the books. People tried to get those books and read through it. There were very uh, fever. There was groups of people feverishly looking through those books. So you can see these different mediums of media where the battle for the truth really continues to this day. The government's still hiding documents they were supposed yeah. to release. I think history is malleable, you know. And uh, I quoted Earl Morris, the filmmaker, who says, "You know what happens when history is destroyed? You know, a lot of history is lost. A lot of history." In the Kennedy case, evidence has been destroyed or altered. Most of the evidence has been altered. A lot of the documents have been uh, kept from the public or destroyed or altered. And, uh, you know, that's part of the problem. But political truth is a phrase I took from Edward J. Epstein's book, Inquest, which is an interesting book in that he really shows through uh, interviews and documents how the Warren Commission was shoddy and false in their uh, investigation. And it opened people's eyes and they thought, Epstein was an intrepid researcher. He was a young uh, uh, college student, but he later turned out to be heavily CIA connected. He wrote wow. implicating Oswald, et cetera. And so it looks like in retrospect, he may have been uh, a plant to some extent, but what he says in the book, he sort of justifies the Warren Commission verdict by saying, well, it was a form of political truth. It was what the system needed, basically. It's a subtle, you know, he doesn't quite, Come out and hit you over the head with that but he uses that phrase and he said it's a form of political truth because it was a political decision to blame it on one guy and not to say it was a coup d'etat and some people say it was a benign cover-up today because johnson was uh trying to prevent a nuclear war that people were saying oswald was sent by the russians or the cubans to kill kennedy which wasn't true but there was peter dale scott who's a very good historian has a theory there was what he calls phase one and phase two. Phase one was a setup to blame the uh, Cubans and the Russians so that there would be an invasion of Cuba. The Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I trace some of this seditious background, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were furious at Kennedy after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which people thought was a triumph for Kennedy, but they thought it was a terrible sellout, like uh, the Munich uh, appeasement, because they wanted to invade Cuba, but it would have- right. Operation Northwoods, right? Yeah, and then there was Operation Northwoods. It was another phony attempt to set up the provocation so we could invade Cuba. Kind of like blowing up the Maine was a false event, you know, or the Gulf of Tonkin. That happens a lot in war, and we're seeing some of that today. But, um, you know, in other words, they thought that Kennedy was, uh, he failed to invade Cuba, and, uh, uh, you know, it's one of the... Right, and they were very strident right-wingers. I mean, very, was it Curtis LeMay? These guys were, I mean, they were parodied in uh, Dr. Strangelove, but they really were, they might have had like a psychological problem. Like they were really strange people too. 
Yeah, when they, huh. I used to write for Irish American Magazine. I was their film critic. I reviewed the film uh, uh, about the, uh, I'm blanking on the title, about Seven oh, Days in May? 13 Days. It was about the Cuban Missile Crisis, a fairly good film, but it showed a sanitized version of Curtis LeMay confronting Kennedy. And LeMay almost seditiously said, you're in a terrible fix, Mr. President. Kennedy was shocked that he said that to him during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he said it's almost as bad as Munich. And they kind of watered it down in the film. But in that review, I said that Curtis LeMay was a madman. And my editor wouldn't let me call him a madman. But he wanted to uh, uh, launch a first strike against the Soviet Union, which would have killed uh, tens of millions of people. Yeah. Then they would have retaliated and killed 20, 30, 40 million people. <laughs> it's, it's just it's, like this. crazy. He also boasted that he killed 2 million people in Korea during the Korean War. And he killed um, 800,000 or so Japanese. In, in, right. in Carpet bomb. bombs, yeah. I mean, he was he killed millions. Unrepentant, unrepentant. You know what you have to do to be called a madman if that doesn't qualify. Yeah. And he was, um, he and other generals were working behind the scenes. It was a military coup, and with other elements of the government were involved, the CIA and possibly Johnson. And Johnson, yeah. Kenneth O'Donnell. Uh, I, 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 I was surprised to find out Kenneth O'Donnell, who was Kennedy's chief of staff, in effect, he was the appointment secretary. He was disloyal to Kennedy. He was, uh, I traced the motorcade route and, and how, you know, how that was formed. <clears throat> and uh, the motorcade route violated the principles of the Secret Service, the protocols, by having a, a sharp turn that slowed the car to 11 miles an hour into an ambush. And O'Donnell was the guy who basically made that decision. He also was in charge of stealing Kennedy's body, or at least the coffin, which may have been empty from the hallway of Parkland Hospital. He was the guy who uh, led that. And he, I found out he was going to be fired on Monday by Kennedy at the White House because they'd uncovered corruption, financial corruption that he, he was involved in. And Johnson was in danger of losing his job. He, uh, he was, there was a lot of talk about dropping him from the ticket or he might've gone to jail because that Friday in Washington, a Senate subcommittee was investigating his crooked finances, and there was a guy named Don Reynolds who was testifying about Johnson uh, making him give a bribe uh, to his television station. He was giving documentation. And then at the same time in New York, Life Magazine had a task force of eight or 10 uh, reporters investigating Johnson's finances. They're preparing a big expose for the following Friday. And Johnson literally had to stop this happening that weekend or he, he, he would have been out of work or maybe in jail within a uh, you know, right. short period of time. Very precarious. He was doing radical stuff, though. I think even during when he was a vice president, he was still having people killed in uh, Texas. So well, he wasn't above. He had a hit man. I think he one didn't it just send any have his sister killed in 61. Well, I've never really investigated that myself, so I'm reluctant to okay. say. Well, the, that's fine. His, I mean, I, that's what I've heard, allegedly. But he was... Fine. Henry Marshall was an agriculture department official who was involved in exposing corruption that involved Johnson and Billy Salastus, and he was found uh, shot from the back with a shotgun, and they, they claimed it was a suicide, for example. Right. In a car, right? Yeah. yeah. But Johnson was also involved in, uh, you know, behind the scenes with the military trying to uh, advocate for widening the Vietnam War to put it on the policy level. And, so when, when uh, Kennedy was killed, Johnson seized the opportunity to uh, change his policy in Vietnam. But 
you know, he, he went in front of Congress and said, let us continue. We're going to continue Kennedy's policies. And that was just a big fraud. But the public, right. the media bought all these propagandistic stories. And so a lot, you know, uh, Norman Mailer said to uh, Tom Wicker, who was the New York Times reporter on the scene in Dallas, who wrote their lead article, uh, you know, a long article that was highly lauded and he became the Washington bureau chief. They all, all the people who screwed up really badly in Dallas got rewarded with important jobs. And um, he quoted the doctors at Parkland saying Kennedy was shot in the uh, throat once from the front. But the story then also contradicted itself by saying some shots were fired from behind. And then the uh, headline said he was killed by a sniper singular, you know, so the story contradicted itself. So Wicker became one of the more strident advocates of the lone gunman theory and attacking Oliver Stone and people. But Norman Mailer confronted him once at a uh, party and said, I think a lot, I think you feel a lot would be lost if you went down the road to conspiracy. And that's really true, you know, that these guys recognize as tremendous, not only their jobs, but the, the um, reputation of the United States would be lost if, if people realized there was an internal coup and, and the whole truth came out. I always thought, wouldn't it be interesting if Dan Rather, toward the end of his life, would go on TV and say, okay, folks, here's, here's what really happened, you know. Or Cronkite uh, or something changed. They all took it to their graves. Even Nixon was talking about the Bay of Pigs thing. They yeah. all kind of knew and they all, and it was a radical change in the country. November 22, 1963, it was a disaster for people in Vietnam, a disaster for Vietnamese people, just a terrible tragedy, really for Southeast Asia. Yeah, and when Nixon expanded the war and uh, you know he campaigned in 68 for uh, ending the war and then he expanded it and his plan was to just uh, transfer ground troops out and, and bomb the hell out of them. But they for, dropped more bombs there than in World War II. More yeah. bombs in Southeast Asia, which is incredible. It's incomprehensible. Most people don't know this. Why did Johnson uh, decide not to run again? Well, the official story is that he just thought, well, he's going to lose in the primaries because the war had gone bad. And, and well, I found in Henry Brandon's autobiography, he was the the Washington bureau chief for the Times of London, a very respected political reporter. He said he was on an airplane with Johnson in in '68, uh, <clears throat> and uh, Johnson called it my assassination. His d decision to with to not run again, and he had a group called the Wise Men who were advising him. People like Dean Acheson and Clark Clifford, and uh, uh, several really important uh, people. Omar Bradley, uh, and, and he was taking orders from them. In March of 65, after the Tet Offensive, they told him, you can't run again uh, because we can't win the war without doing things that the public wouldn't stand for, like dropping nuclear bombs, et cetera. And the war is unwinnable. And uh, uh, there'd be a police state dropping nuclear bombs. You couldn't do that. So you have to resign, or not resign, but not run again. And Johnson called that my assassination. He actually oh, said it was more painful than Kennedy's assassination because I had to live on after this happened to me. I mean, it was a callous right. comment, but they all pulled the rug out from under him. They knew he wasn't well. Like there was some kind of he had psychotic episodes. I think and very strange. He's not very strange person, um, and involved in all kinds of subterfuge and stuff. So Bill Moyers resigned. Uh, 
after a while because he was concerned about Johnson's mental health. He didn't want to be involved anymore in the Vietnam War. And, and he and a couple of other people uh, consulted psychiatrists. Johnson was really out of control. And then you got Nixon, who's uh, you know a warmonger and out of control. And to the time. Kennedy, it was the sixties was absolutely crazy. It yeah, was really it led to the other assassinations, and then Watergate happened, and all kinds of you know it had, it's been terrible ever since sixty three. And then we have you know the almost climax in in uh, twenty twenty two, where people are attacking the U.S. Capitol, and then. Um, you know, the, the Republican National Committee says that this is legitimate political discourse. I go into a lot in political truth about the fallout from <clears throat> the coup attempt in 63 and how that was denied so much. And then when another coup attempt happens, the, the language the media used was often obfuscatory. Uh, George Orwell wrote a famous piece called Politics in the English Language, and he talked about the dangerous effect of politics, and you can warp reality and just change the meaning of things. And and so they, they went out of their way, and there's some really ludicrous and, and dishonest articles in the Washington Post and other publications. Quite a, quite a lot of publications were uh, doing handstands, bending over backwards to deny that it was a coup. And they, they even started... Well, they, they, they called it an insurrection, which at least is a pretty violent uh, term. But then they started calling it a riot, which kind of downgrades it even more. And then then people, one congressman even said it was a bunch of tourists uh, walking through the Capitol. And I kind of thought, what's next? Are they going to call it like a uh, tailgate party that got out of hand, you know? And there was such denial in, <clears throat> in, the, in the media. Gore uh, uh, Vidal called us the United States of Amnesia. We don't want to face a lot of facts about ourselves. And that's that's what I examined throughout political truth is that this terrible coup in broad daylight in front of 400 people, the president's brains were blown out on a public street and nobody was punished. It changed my life because when I was a kid, I mentioned I worked for Kennedy and I wanted to be a politician. And um, I, I was a journalist and I, I lost my interest in, in being a politician. I became a writer instead. It turned me into a writer, and it, 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 I lost all my faith in the government and our political system. And a lot of people probably feel the same way, and uh, you know, had this profound effect on all of us. But when we live uh, with lies, it is a poisonous atmosphere. Mark Lane said in 2013 that the honor of France was redeemed when they admitted that Dreyfus was innocent, and the Dreyfus case was a very important case. In the, uh, Dreyfus affair, GQs. He was falsely accused. Uh, he was a, a Jewish uh, officer, and he was falsely accused of treason. Then they admitted that it was all false and a lie, and they, they, they uh, pardoned him and restored his title. And, and, and <clears throat> the honor of France was restored, but the honor of the United States will not be restored until we admit that Lee Harvey Oswald was not guilty of killing the president. But <clears throat> will that ever happen? I doubt it in our lifetimes, to borrow a phrase from Earl Warren. It would be great, but don't hold your breath, unfortunately, because the media control it. They could, they could do a reversal. I noticed occasionally there's an honest reporter somewhere. Like in the Washington Post, there's, there's a reporter, and I'm trying to remember his name right now. He's been writing honest stories about the Robert Kennedy assassination. Hmm. And uh, the Washington Post has been lying about that story, uh, you know, because Sirhan Sirhan did not uh, shoot Robert Kennedy. Right. 
he was uh, a patsy in the sense that he shot other people. He fired toward Robert Kennedy. He was never close enough to Robert Kennedy. The kill shot was like uh, six inches from the back of Robert Kennedy's head. Well, it was actually uh, an inch or two from behind, okay. according to the autopsy by Thomas Noguchi. Um, <clears throat> he was shot from point-blank range, and it's a powder burn. You can tell a contact shot almost... Uh, the contact shot is when you press the gun against somebody's skin, but it was an inch or two from the back of his head behind his right ear, fired from a low angle. And Sirhan was always firing from a straight angle, and he was three or four feet in front of Kennedy, and he was not shooting in that direction. And there was a security guard, uh, Thane Eugene Caesar, Gene Caesar was his name, uh, who was in that position behind Robert Kennedy, and uh, he's probably the shooter. But uh, this reporter in the Washington Post um, uh, has been writing actually honest stories about that, which kind of amazed me. Um, I'm trying to find the name here. Well, it is weird. You wouldn't expect it in the Washington Post. Yeah, I interviewed I uh, uh, Lisa Peace. I think it's a lie too big to fail was the name of her book. Yeah, she goes Lisa into that. Yeah. A, a good book on that subject. And yeah, Chris yeah. has been uh, doing it. I'm blank on his name, but. Uh, you can look it up on the internet. He's done several stories. So they allow this guy to write stories. Okay, maybe Robert Kennedy's death is not considered as, as, as big a threat to the system as JFK's death. Uh, but uh, generally, most of the media lie about it. And then when Sirhan got his pardon uh, recommendation from, from the parole board, the governor, uh, under pressure from the Kennedy family, some members of the Kennedy family, not all of them, wanted Sirhan kept in prison, so he kept him in prison. And most of the media just say RFK's assassin is kept in prison, you know. And right, right. Kamala Harris was uh, attorney general of California when they tried to reopen the case because there's a lot of evidence that has come out. And, and people like Paul Schrade, who was one of the people who was shot, wanted the case reopened, and she wouldn't do it <clears throat> for political expediency. So that is still a controversial case, but. Uh, the post, uh, there's a little crack in the system there where they allow an honest story to be written about it. It's very unusual, very unusual indeed. Joseph, we are at about an hour, 17 minutes. How would you like to wrap this up? Would you like to add anything, anything I missed? Uh, I mean, we've had a cover, well, covered a lot of the bases on, on yeah, the book. Yeah, we covered a lot of bases. Very thorough. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that, you know, a couple of things I would say. One is that book publishing is more honest than newspapers and magazines in our country, you, you have more freedom. And one, one reason I go into this in my book, not only are dissident books published by small publishers, and they have been since the 60s, uh, they don't get a lot of you know, attention. And they don't, if they get reviewed, they get mocked by the New York Times and other uh, outlets, but they get, you can get them out. Uh, Trine Day is a publisher that publishes a lot of assassination books. But you can also do self-published books like I've been doing. Political Truth is self-published, as is Into the Nightmare. And I've done a couple of other self-published books. What, what I do is I publish through major publishers. Like Columbia University Press published uh, the Billy Wilder book. And uh, University Press of Kentucky did my Wells book. And Simon & Schuster did my uh, book on Frank Capra, my book on Spielberg. And R Random House did my book on screenwriting called Writing in Pictures. So... So I go back and forth between major publishers and self-publishing. But if it's a book like Into the Nightmare Political Truth, you know that no publisher is going to touch it, no mainstream publisher. 
And the only advantage of a mainstream publisher is you get reviewed basically and uh, you get some publicity push. But, you know, authors today have to publicize their own books anyway. Uh, the companies don't put a lot of money into publishing, to promoting books unless it's Stephen King or somebody like that. So um, you don't get reviewed very much. And so the, the sales are less. But that's the way it is in our country. But you can get the book published. So we still have a certain amount of freedom of the press. And uh, I, I think it's a great system. What, what made that revolution happen? I, I self-published my first book in 1968. It was called Persistence of Vision. It was a collection of film criticism. And I couldn't get it in bookstores. I went around to bookstores and nobody would pick it up. And it kind of died. But um, a few years ago, uh, it became feasible to do electronic publishing. You can set a, you can hire a designer and get a book set and make it look it should look really professional, have a good cover and good inside and uh, get it edited. Uh, I hire a copy editor, et cetera. And, and uh, so you make it as polished as possible and you can do that. And then you can, Amazon made it possible to self-publish books a few years ago. Uh, they will um, list your book for a small fee. They take 15%, which I think is fair. You know, it's, it's their, their cut. And so somebody buys it. So everybody in the world can buy the book from Amazon. I know people knock Amazon for other reasons, but they do uh, democratize the publication of books. And uh, books are available, uh, you know, I, Into the Nightmare and Political Truth. I get people buying it from all over the world, which is wonderful. And they sell steadily. They sell steadily. And um, what you do is you get a fulfillment house, and I'm recommending this to people. Uh, there are companies that will print your book on demand and, and you know, just press a button and the book comes out 10 minutes later and it looks really good and the cover is great. And then they will ship it. Um, they get their money from Amazon. They pass along, you know, uh, the portion that Amazon doesn't take the slice of. And then you make a deal with the fulfillment house, you know, for how much they get and how much you get. And it's a fair deal for, for uh, authors. And you set the price on Amazon so they can't change the price. And then you get the book available. And it's a, that's how, they, how I get these unusual books published that are provocative. And I like it because you have complete freedom. Nobody changed a word of Into the Nightmare of Political Truth. I didn't have to compromise at all. And you notice even Peter Dale Scott, who's a great historian, published a book with University of California Press, which is a good academic publisher. I've published with them. He did a book, uh, Deep Politics and the JFK Assassination. And you could tell that he pulled a few punches. You know, he hedged on a few things. Oh, right. Interesting, yeah. A lot of it is very small. it down. Yeah. Conspiracy book. But there are some points where you could tell that they kind of made him tone it down a bit. And uh, that happens with uh, even a pretty good publisher. So, uh, to, to go outside the system is what I would advocate. And that's what people have been doing since 63, uh, where Mark Lane found this little tiny dissident publication. But they put out um, National Guardian, sold it as a pamphlet, and they sold hundreds of thousands of copies because people really wanted to buy it. And then the New Republic, two days later, published an article by um, Scott and Lynn and Jack Innes. Uh, 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 another dissonant article back back in the days when the New Republic was still sort of on us. And uh, today it's harder to get things published in even the political magazines. But, um, you know, that's the but way. You're, uh, like a, you're like a hybrid, Joseph. So you self-publish and go with mainstream publications. So 
there's an there's options there for people to think if you really don't mind you know like maybe your movie books aren't as controversial or they don't have as controversial topics well, like as book was really controversial because he's a beloved political uh, public figure but he was a complete fraud uh, politically he was not what he he, he uh, pretended to be, and he lied. His book, uh, his autobiography, is just a pack of lies. And so I, I spent seven and a half years exposing his myth, and I had four years of legal battle to get that book out. This is wow. an example of how hard it can be. Uh, I had to move the book from Random House to Simon and Schuster to get it published because uh, Janine Basinger, who is uh, Capra's archivist at Wesleyan University, and Robert Gottlieb, my editor at Knopf, who's a famous editor tried to block the book from being published. They put up all kinds of legal uh, barriers. And then mm -hmm. they also, uh, they were also maybe trying to gut the book. There was some uh, idea that they might publish it with uh, revelations, remove the capitalism informer in the blacklist period. So it took four years of my life. And I wrote a whole book called, frankly, Unmasking Frank Capra, 600 page book about the struggle I had to get that book published. And it's, mm -hmm. It's a disturbing saga about how hard it is to tell the truth about a major cultural figure in the world. Right. And that's that's the struggle that authors face. And so if you try to do a book on Kennedy with uh, Simon Schuster or Random House, you'd have the same problems. It'd be a nightmare. So it's it's a, it's very pleasant in a way to have it self-published where you can just be the boss and be in control. And people who want to read it will buy it. And people like you. The way you reach the public uh, is, is wonderful. Podcasts are a great medium. Uh, blogs, you know, forums. That's the way you get the word around. It's kind of a separate channel of uh, communication. We have. Yeah, it's this is different. This is a hybrid too because this video will go to kind of the main social media and then the audio goes out, so people can pick and choose how they want to uh, watch or listen along. I mean, I don't have a lot of bells and whistles usually, so it's usually just kind of a conversation. Well, the media, but. you know. Uh, when I talk about media, there are many media, and the internet is a big medium, and it's terrific. Uh, you know, in some countries like China and other countries, they really control it, and there there is an attempt to try to restrict uh, uh, the internet, uh, Facebook and other uh, channels. You know, and that is that is risky because yeah, a lot of garbage gets uh, put out by Facebook and other places, but that's the price you pay for freedom of speech. And that's what the First Amendment is about. In other words, people have the right to say anything as long as there are certain things you can't libel people and you can't uh, incite. Uh, I mean, like the Supreme Court ruled that you can call for the president to be assassinated, but if you actually do something about it, you can be arrested. That's that's the line you can't cross. And also in the blacklist period, which I've studied a lot, the Hollywood blacklist, people lost their careers because they were accused of being communists sympathizers, some were communists, and some weren't. But the the law is that if you try to overthrow the government, you can be arrested, like some, some of the people are in the January 6th uh, attempts. But it's you can call for the overthrow of the government. That's protected speech. And that's why we have, you know, freedom of speech is our most important uh, thing in America, because it gives us the right to have a vigorous debate about things. And then people can make up their own minds. That's what I right. hope uh, happens with a book like mine, Political Truth, and then if you hear, if you read the opposite in the New York Times, you judge for yourself. And when right. I, I teach students to be media critics, you have to, you have to read a lot of sources. I read, you know, eight or ten papers every day, and I look a lot of sites, and 
you cite tons of sources in here, Peter, Peter, Dale, Scott, so many of the researchers that I'm familiar with are referenced in your book, just in the text, you know, so. Yeah, I but a uh, huge amount of reading and uh, document digging, you know. I used to have to go to the National Archives to dig up documents, but now they uh, put them a lot of them online. But, you know, even there, uh, Biden and Trump uh, uh, were supposed to release uh, the remaining documents in the Kennedy case, and they've, they've been threatened by the CIA. Uh, Trump said he was going to release them all, and the CIA got to him, and he, he backed off, and then Biden did the same. And, you know, how many years have passed since uh, 1963, and it's still a national secret. I mean, it's crazy. If Oswald was this loner who killed Kennedy for no real reason, why are they keeping all these documents from us? It doesn't make any sense, does it? But people can think to themselves and, and put it all together and connect the dots, which I, I try to do in my book. It's you know, a very, very candid book about uh, how they lie to us, and I, I make no right. bones about uh, the mainstream. And, and you separate it into two parts, the myth and the unraveling, the, the consequences of this fake story. And then, that, again, the title of the book is Political Truth, the Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy and the author is Joseph McBride. Book is published December 2021. Thank you so much for your time, Joseph. Thank you, William. It's been wonderful talking All right, to you. Take care. All right.